What's up, everybody? It's good to see you. It is, Anna. It's so great to see you. <laughs> Here's the great thing. So when you have a stupid, like, what do we call it? A turkey call laugh? That's what it's called, right? If nobody, like, responds to you and you say, hey, guys, it's good to see you, you can just laugh, and then the whole room just, you know, laughs. Cause, and it makes me feel incredibly insecure. Thanks. Thanks so much, everybody, for making fun of the laugh I can't change. <laughs> um, I realized something this week, and it's pretty cool. Five years ago this week, Natalie and I got engaged, which is super fun. And the like days lined up this year. So we got engaged on a Tuesday on September 15th. And this year, Tuesday was September 15th. So I'm sitting in the same McDonald's that Nick was describing over on Main Street. And it was like dawning on me. I'm like, oh, man, I got engaged five years ago. That's super cool. And it's like funny because it was a Tuesday, which I like will ask Natalie. I was like, did you see it coming? And she's like, no, not at all. Like, I knew that we were going to get engaged at some point. But the Tuesday really threw me off. Like... A Tuesday, huh? Like, and I was like, yeah, I don't know. So it was awesome. I was at my parents' house. I like set up like these white Christmas lights up in the tree, like hung white balloons and stuff. At one point while I'm setting it up, the ladder like falls out from underneath me and I'm like dangling there, like scratch up my arm. Natalie's asking about it, but we got engaged. It was awesome. I proposed, she said yes. And here's what happened in that proposal. In that proposal, I was identifying Natalie as the love of my life. I was identifying her as the woman that I wanted to marry. And because of that, I was like, Natalie, I want to fully commit myself to you. I've identified you as the woman that is the love of my life. I want to marry you. I'm going to fully commit myself to you. So she said, yes, we got engaged. We got married seven months later. It was great. But imagine how weird this would be. Imagine if as we got engaged, I just kept perpetually putting off the date, like kept perpetually putting off setting the date. And like year one goes by, year two goes by, year three goes by, and now we've been engaged for 10 years. What would you do if you're the girl and the guy that you have been proposed to by is just constantly putting the date off, constantly setting, not setting the date? What would you do? You'd be again to call into question whether or not he truly was serious about identifying you as the woman that he wanted to marry. You begin calling that into question. Why? Because this whole thing, if you really have identified me as the woman that you want to marry, it's an all or nothing kind of question. Or it's an all or nothing kind of situation. There's not like this half commitment zone. You know, like Roy and Pam was not a good situation in the office. It just wasn't. Like you begin to call into question as you're watching the office, as Roy and Pam have this nine-year engagement. Like, dude, Roy, do you really really believe that Pam is the woman that you want to marry and that you've really fallen in love with? Is that really true, Roy? Which every time Natalie and I watch The Office, which is pretty often, we've watched it three times now together, which is just amazing. I always say, Team Roy. Team Roy. I'm Team Roy. Forget Jim. Team Roy. I'm also Team Jacob Twilight. Ha ha. <laughs> team Jacob. I have, we haven't finished Twilight. I've, I've only seen the first four. Does Team Jacob win? No? He doesn't? No! You ruined it for me! Way to spoil it, Rihanna! <laughs> See, I make a joke, no one laughs, I do the turkey call, here we are. <laughs> team Roy, Team Jacob, okay. Oh, yeah, okay, nine years, nine-year engagement. It's like, Roy, there's no middle ground. If you really were serious about Pam being the woman that you'd fallen in love with, then why this nine-year engagement? This whole thing, if she's really the one you've fallen in love with, if that's really who you've identified her as, 
then it's an all or nothing sort of situation. And to stay in this halfway committed zone actually begins to call into question whether or not you truly believe that she's the woman you want to marry. We've been asking the last five weeks, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we've looked at these five stories, four before tonight, a fifth tonight, to try to get an uh, accurate picture of who Jesus was, who the disciples saw him to be. And tonight we're going to look at a story where Jesus now turns to his disciples and says, who do you say I am? Like you've heard what other people say I am. Who do you say I am? And they say, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the King. And Jesus says, okay, if you think that that's true, then here's what I want. I want you to follow me. I want you to fully commit yourself to me. I want you to surrender your life to me. Because if you really have identified me as the king, then this is an all or nothing sort of situation. There's not a halfway. If you really believe that I'm the king, then fully surrender your life to me and commit to me. So we're going to be in Luke 9, looking at this fifth story in the life of Jesus. We're going to go through the story. We're going to ask three questions. Who is Jesus? What kind of king is he? And then how will you respond to him? Who is Jesus? What kind of king is he? And how will you respond? So Luke 9, 18 is where we're going to start. And as we go through this story, we're going to keep coming back to this. If you really say that Jesus is the king, then the only logical response that you could have is to submit your life to him. If you really think that Jesus is the king, then the only response that makes sense is to surrender your life to him. So Luke 9 is where we're going to be at, this story and the life of Jesus. So if you've got a Bible, great. If not, it's going to be on the screen. Question one, who is Jesus? So here's verse 18. It says, while he was praying in private, his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowd say I am? So Jesus, at this point, he's done ministry. We've seen several miracles, several moments in Jesus' life before tonight. We know that he's doing ministry. He's traveling around, and he comes to his disciples. They're praying, and he says, who do the crowds say I am? Hey, as we've been doing ministry, who are people saying I am? Verse 19. They answered, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, but one of the ancient prophets have come back. So the disciples say, hey, the crowds, they say that, you know, there's some people that think you're Elijah. Some people think that you're one of the prophets. Verse 20, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? But you, who do you say I am? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've heard the crowds. You've heard what other people have to say about me, that some think that I'm Elijah, some that I'm a prophet, but you, who do you say that I am? Guys, there's a reality that 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that there is coming a day where each of us will appear before Jesus individually. And Jesus is going to look at us and say, who do you say that I am? And it's not going to be enough to say, well, well, the crowds or others or my family or my youth pastor or my friends or my professor. You are going to stand before Jesus, just you and him one day. And he's going to look at you and say, who do you say I am? How are you going to answer? I mean, really, think about that. There is coming a day where you will sit down, just you and Jesus. Just you as an individual. And he'll ask you, who do you say I am? And it's not going to be enough to point to parents or to friends or to anyone else. You will have to have an answer for that. Who do you say I am? Personally, on an individual level, who do you say Jesus is? Now, pause. For the rest of this sermon, I'm going to 
share with you what the disciples' answer was to that and then how Jesus says their life should be shaped by their answer. But I know that some of you tonight aren't ready to answer that, that you're like, hey, I, I don't know what I think about that answer. I don't know how I would respond to Jesus if I sat before him and had to answer who I say Jesus is. I, I don't know. Well, here's my encouragement to you. First, I am so happy that you're here. I am so happy that you're at Salt Company. Salt Company is a place for people who don't have that answer figured out. It's a place where you can come and in a safe way ask questions about who Jesus is, what the Bible is, what faith is. I am so happy that you're here. Second, don't ignore this question. Don't settle for what you've heard other people say about who Jesus is. Answer it for yourself. Do the research, do the hard work, read the Bible to see what, from the source who Jesus says he was. And then you make a decision personally, as an individual. Don't just listen to other people, what they have to say about Jesus. Don't even listen to just Salt Company. Actually, for you yourself, make a decision about who you think Jesus is. So Jesus asked his disciples, verse 19, but you, verse 20, but you, he asked them, who do you say I am? And here's Peter's answers. Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus, you're God's Messiah. Now, what does that mean? Messiah in Hebrew means anointed one. So as the Israelites were getting a new king, they'd pour oil on his head, they'd anoint him. And so it really is this symbol of being kingly, of being anointed. And so it was really Peter saying, Jesus, you're king. You're the anointed one. And Christ and Messiah are, are interchangeable. Christ is just the Greek way of saying Messiah. So Jesus, you're the Christ, you're Messiah, you're the king. Now, why does that matter? Well, when God created everything, he created the world under his rule, under, under his sovereign rule. But humanity rejected that rule. And because of our rejection, it brought brokenness between our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and it brought brokenness into the entire created world. And since that moment, for, for 2,000 years, from that moment in the Old Testament to when Jesus comes, God promised to bring a king. He promised to bring a king that would restore the creation that was broken and restore humanity into a relationship with himself and each other. And so for the rest of the Old Testament, as you're going through your Bible, it's just, just this story after story of a leader rising up. And it's like, maybe this is the king we've been waiting for. And maybe it'd be good for a little while, but then they'd fail. And it's like, ah, it's not the one. And, and eventually you just get to this spot where you just feel like you're longing, just waiting for this king that God has promised that is going to come back and restore everything and bring back this, this kingdom and restore just the world that's been broken. And so you just get this longing. Man, we need a king. We need a king who's going to fix this broken world. And it's really that same longing that I think a lot of us feel right now. Like, have you felt that longing in your heart that's like, man, this world is kind of jacked up? It's like, man, maybe sometimes things go good for a little bit. Maybe there's a new invention here that makes life a little bit easier. Maybe there's a new leader that, that helps us out for a while. But eventually things just are broken again. And it's just this longing of, man, we, we need somebody who will really and finally make the world right. So when Peter says, Jesus, you are God's Messiah, Jesus, you are God's King, he's saying, you're the one that we've been waiting for. You've been, you're the one that we've been longing for. You're the King who has come to make the world right. You're the one that has come to fix this broken world. Guys, Jesus is the king. He has eternally existed. And we're told in Colossians that all things were created by him and for him. 
that he is glorious and powerful and full of authority, that he is a king that will rule and reign for all eternity, and that he came 2,000 years ago to enter into the world that he created, but that was broken because of our rejection, to make it right, to fix it, as Jesus is the eternal, glorious king. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you think or picture Jesus, but there's a couple passages that I want to read that actually, I think, shape how we understand what it means that Jesus is king and he's glorious. So I'm going to read two passages, and this might be weird or different for some of you, but you might even want to close your eyes and just like picture these descriptions of who Jesus is in his glory. So let me read these two passages that just describe Jesus as king. So the first one is Colossians 1. Here's how Jesus is described. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Here's the second passage, Hebrews 1. Picture Jesus as, as you hear these, this description. Long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high so that he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Guys, Jesus is the glorious king of the universe. He's existed for all eternity. You had a birthday. He never did. We hear that he sustains all things by his powerful word. I mean, think about this. If you had to water every single plant in the universe, like if that was humanity's job, do you think that humanity could like water every plant in the universe? I, I don't think we could. Like if all of the minds in the world came together and we're told that just by his word, Jesus is sustaining every single molecular process, every single orbit of the planets, all of it, Jesus is sustaining. Eight billion people who take a breath of air and all of the molecular things that happen to exchange the oxygen for the CO2, all of it happens every second. And Jesus, the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe, as the glorious king, is sustaining that. And if at any second he took a break, eight billion people would suffocate. Are you amazed at his power and his glory? 
He is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the one that the Old Testament were promised and that we've been longing for. The one that's coming back to restore a broken world, to fix the world that he created, but was broken because of our rejection. But what kind of king is he? He might be great, but just what kind of Messiah is he? What kind of king is he? Because here's the deal. Every other king in Israel's history and every other king in the world hasn't quite worked out. So when the Israelites were asking for a king in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel the prophet warned the Israelites. He's like, hey, just so you know, if you get a human king, if you get a king, he is going to take your sons and daughters to be your, his servants. He's going to take your sons to be in his military. He's going to take your crops. He's going to take your money. He's going to take your land. He's going to take, take, take. And they said, we want a king. So Samuel says, okay. And here's the reality about every king in the world. They always take. And they say, hey, I'm going to take, but I'll give you protection or security or whatever. But they always overtake and underdeliver on their promises. What kind of king is Jesus? Jesus is the only king who didn't come to take, but to give his life for the world. And is the only king whose promises never fail. Every other king, take and then don't deliver on their promises. What kind of king is Jesus? He's the king that came to gave his life and whose promises never fail. That is the sort of king Jesus is. Look what he says right after Peter says he's the Messiah. Verse 21. What does Jesus say right after Peter declares that he's the Messiah? He says this, but he strictly warned them and instructed them to tell no one, saying it's necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. The second Peter says, you're the king, Jesus, what does he do? He says, yeah, but I'm a king who came to die. I'm a king who came to suffer, to be rejected, to die, and to be rose again on the third day. Why, did, why does he tell him not to tell other people that he's the Messiah? It's because they had these wrong expectations of what the Messiah would come to do. And he says, no, I'm not that sort of Messiah. I'm a Messiah that, yes, I'm great, but I'm a Messiah who came to die for the world he created. The only way that Jesus the King could fix the world that's been broken by our rejection and our sin was if he the King died for the world. He said, I'm a king that isn't just great, isn't just majestic, isn't just glorious, but I'm a king who came to die, to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, but to rise again. If you believe that, then what is the response? If you agree that Jesus is the king and he's a king that would come to die for the world, what is the only logical response to that? Well, here's how Jesus tells his disciples to respond to him. Verse 23. He says this, I'm going to read to verse 27. Then he said to all of them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What is the only response that makes sense when you acknowledge that Jesus is the king and the king that came to die? It's to surrender your life to him. If you have identified that Jesus is truly the king, if you really believe that he's the king, 
and you really believe that he is a king that would come to die, then the only logical response to that is to surrender your life completely to him. It makes absolutely no sense to be half committed. It makes no sense. If you would say, Jesus, yes, he is the eternal king of the universe, and he is the king that came to die, but I will give him an inch of my life. It makes no sense. This is an all or nothing situation. If you think he is the king and if you think he came to die, then the only response that makes any sense is to surrender your life to him. And Jesus describes that surrendering in four ways and gives a promise. So let's start with the promise. Then we'll look at these four responses. What does it look like to surrender my life? So here's the promise. The promise is that last verse, 27. Truly, I tell you that there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, at first, that sounds confusing because you're like, okay, these disciples, it sounds like Jesus saying, you disciples won't die until I come back. But the disciples died, and as far as I know, Jesus hasn't come back. So what does that mean? Well, most people think that there's two potential options, and both have to do with how you understand what it means to see the kingdom of God. So first, it could either mean that one, the next story after this story is what we call the transfiguration, where some of the disciples get to see Jesus glorified. And maybe to see the kingdom of God is that moment. The other option is maybe Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection, that to see the kingdom of God is to see him die and, be ro- and to rise again. Maybe that's what it means to see the kingdom of God. Either way, what do both of those options have in common? They're both about seeing the glory of Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you think I'm the king, and if you think that I'm a king that came to die for the world that I love, and you surrender your life to me, you will see my glory. That's the promise. Well, what does it look like to surrender your life? Four responses. Verse 23 is the first one. Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you think Jesus is the king, then follow him daily. Follow him daily. Follow Jesus in every way. Walk in obedience to him. Submit your desires to him. Deny yourself. What does that mean? It means that the things, there's things in your life that you want to make the decision, that you want to hold on. Deny yourself to follow Jesus. Take up your cross daily. Imagine what, you, what would change in your life if you literally had to carry a super heavy cross around with you all day. I heard about a fraternity that for new people, they made them carry mattresses on their back. That is a great hazing joke. That is just a great one. Uh, Super funny, lighthearted. You have to carry a mattress for a week. That's hilarious. Okay, let's do it again. (laughs) Thank you. I have such an out when my jokes don't land. I just laugh at them and then you guys laugh too. It's great. (laughs) Okay, carrying a mattress. (laughs) Okay, now I'm, okay. Carrying a mattress, think about that. What would change in your life if you had to carry a super heavy mattress? So many things, where you went, who you hung out with, what mattered to you, what you talked about, because you'd probably talk about the mattress a lot. Guys, if you are daily carrying your cross, if you're daily walking in the footsteps of Jesus, of service and humility, of love and compassion, it will change everything about your life. It will change what matters to you. It will change what you talk about. It will change what you spend money on. It will change where you go, who you hang out with. It changes everything. And it's to be a daily following him. So many of us want to follow Jesus in the big things, but we're unwilling to follow him in the small things. We want to follow him in the big decisions of life, but we're unwilling to do the very small things he's asking of us today. 
What does it look like to surrender my life and follow him? Well, it looks like following him, denying myself, taking up my cross daily. Second, 24, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What was the problem with Roy and Pam? Roy wanted the benefits of a relationship without the cost of it. He wanted the benefits of having a romantic relationship with Pam, but he didn't want the cost of leaving his bachelor life. He wanted to hang on to things that were want, he once had as a bachelor. Guys, it is absolutely true that there are going to be things that Jesus asks you to hand him in this life. That maybe at one point in your life prior to following him really mattered to you. And will we be Roy who wants to hang on to the things of our past life, but just have the benefits of a romantic relationship with Pam? Or will we fully commit to Jesus? Because I know that there are some things that really matter to you. Some things that even feel like they're an identity level thing for you that Jesus will ask you to give up. And it will feel like it's costing you an arm and a leg. But I promise you that whatever Jesus asks you to, cost, to, to give up for him pales in comparison to what it took for him to save you. It will cost everyone something to follow Jesus, but whatever it costs us pales in comparison to what it cost him to save us. He is a good king who loved us so much that he would die for us. And when he asks us to hand him things from our life, we can trust him because he is the one that didn't withhold his life from us. Third, verse 25. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses or forfeits himself? Guys, if you believe that Jesus is the king and that he loved us to the point that he would die for us and secured for us an eternal life, then why on earth are you living for this life? If you really believe that there is an eternity that's waiting for us, then why are you only living for things that seem right right now? Right? Why do we base 99% of our decisions on things that matter in this life, but only 1% on things that matter for all eternity? It is totally possible to gain the entire world, yet forfeit your soul. Do you know what that looks like? It looks like playing Monopoly. So, Let's pretend you're playing Monopoly and you're winning big. Like you have all the properties and all the money and it's super fun. And the 12-hour game that Monopoly is, is a great time for you. You get to the end of the game. You have all the money, all the properties. The game ends. What do you have? What did it matter? When the game ends, it doesn't matter. Why? Because Monopoly money doesn't matter in real life. Because our life here compared to eternity is a 12-hour game of Monopoly. And you can win all that there is to win in this world. And yet if you have not stored up for yourselves things that have eternal worth, if you haven't lived for things that matter for an eternity, then what you'll have when it's all over is nothing. Don't live for just the present. Live for what is eternal. Don't collect Monopoly money. Live for the eternity that awaits us. 60 years here is nothing compared to the 60 million that awaits us. 
And when you understand that, it will actually reshape everything that you value and prioritize in this life. On a Sunday night in this room, we were praying for one of our pastors and his wife who are about to move overseas. And they're moving to a place where they don't know the language. They have zero friends. They have to start new jobs. They'll get to come back every once in a while. Uh, there's no end in sight. They're moving there forever. And I'm holding Isla as a group of us in this room are praying for them on Sunday night as they're preparing to leave. And about halfway through, I come up. There's a time for prayer. I come up to the pastor and I put my hand on his shoulder and I'm holding Isla in my lap. And we're actually just sitting right here. I'm like sitting on this ledge holding Isla. I put my hand on his shoulder and I look at Isla, who's my daughter, and I say, Isla, this man is one of daddy's heroes. And this man's wife is one of daddy's heroes. They're doing something super hard. And a lot of us would look at what they're doing and we would say they're losing their life. But it's because they have seen that one can gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul. That they're moving to a place where they want to make Jesus known. And they're moving to a place where there's one ethnic group of people that has 8,500 people in this ethnic group. And there's not a single believer in that ethnic group. There's an entire group of people, an entire ethnic group of people that there is not a single believer in it. And this couple in our church have an eternal perspective about their life where they're saying, you know what, for the next 50 years, we will lose our life here, but gain our life there. We are going to live for that which is eternal. And guys, that ethnic group is one of over 7,000 ethnic groups that is unreached and doesn't have access to the gospel. Representing 3 billion people. Three out of eight people have no access to the gospel. Guys, so many of us say that we care about ethnic diversity in the church, but how many of us are willing to surrender our life to go to an ethnic group that isn't represented in the church at all? Am I? Are you? What are the stupid things I care about and get so worked up about? Oh my goodness, guys, this is honesty moment. I got so excited today because I'm going to aerate and dethatch my lawn tomorrow. How stupid. <laughs> yeah, it is laughable. I care so much about that that has no eternal value. That's just monopoly money. In my backyard this morning, I was sitting with Timmy Lopez, and he was telling me, dude, this is hard. I've left Louisiana. I've come to Iowa. I'm going to Ohio to be the salt director, and this is hard. I'm leaving family and friends and the world I know and the comforts I have. Why? Because there's 403 colleges in this, in this country that we want a church to engage with the gospel. So much so that we're asking people to leave what is comfortable for them here in this life and go to a place where they don't know very many people to engage people with the gospel so that they would have an eternity secured with Christ. It's worth it. You can gain the entire world but in the end, it's just monopoly money if you haven't lived for that which is eternal. Fourth, 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. 
if you really believe Jesus is the king, and if you really believe he's a king that would lay down his life, and that he would lay down his life so that you could have an eternity with him, how can we not talk about him? How can we not stand with him? How could we be ashamed of him? Now, guys, there are so many moments in my life where I back down in, in cowardness. But when we reflect on the reality that Jesus is king and that he's a king who died to save us, how can we not just be filled with boldness to share, boldness to stand with him, boldness to identify with him? All right, pull back. Who do you say Jesus is? Really, who do you say Jesus is? We've seen stories of his love. We've seen stories of his forgiveness, of his compassion, of his power and calming the winds and the storm. But who do you say Jesus is? Is he the king? Is he the king that would lay down his life for the world? And if he is, then the only logical response to that is to surrender your life to him. The only logical response to that is to follow him daily by taking up your cross, denying yourself and following him. The only logical response is to live for that which has eternal worth. The only logical response is to say, yes, Jesus, you might ask me to give you some things that hurt, but I trust you as the good king who didn't withhold his life from me. The only logical response is to be filled with boldness and courage and to share about him, all with the hope that one day we will see his glory. Guys, if you say Jesus is king, then surrender your life to him. Follow him anywhere, anytime. It's the only thing that makes sense. And if you say he's not king, then okay, don't follow him at all. But it makes no sense to follow him halfway if you really think he's the king of the universe. And guys, we're gonna mess this up all the time. I don't get it right, you don't get it right. But what we'll find is a king that has offered us grace and forgiveness as we seek to follow him. It will cost you something to follow Jesus. It won't be easy. But you can trust a king who would love you enough that he would die for you, that when he asks you to give him things that are really hard to give up, that you can trust him and that it's for your good and that it will be worth it. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for this story. Thank you for this reminder that if we are convinced that you are the king of our lives, then the only response that makes sense is to follow you completely. God, I pray that we would keep those eyes, keep that perspective that we were bought by you, that we're owned by you, and that we have an eternity that is secured with you. Not because we did something for you, but because Christ did something for us. And that in response, we would enjoy and love, surrender our life to you, knowing that you are the king to, that came to restore our relationship with you, our relationships with each other, the relationships that we, that we have that are filled with brokenness. God, I pray that each of us would surrender, that we'd open our hands to you, that we would say, God, anywhere, anytime. Why? Because my life is not mine, it's yours. And I want to live for the next 60 million years, not the 60 years I have on this earth. God, I want my life to not just be a collection of monopoly money, but God, that my life would have eternal impact. 
God, how amazing is it that there's a couple here at this church that we're praying would reduce the number of ethnic groups that don't have a believer in them? How amazing is that? And God, we don't know where you'll take us in this life. I don't know if these students will move back home. I don't know if these students will move to a city where there's a college. I don't know if these students will move to a country where there's an ethnic group that doesn't have a believer in it. I don't know if they're going to live a relatively normal life in Cedar Falls trying to love a wife and two kids and get to know my neighbors. Like, I don't know what you're going to call us to, but God, I pray that we would follow you. I pray that we'd surrender our life in response to seeing you giving up your life for us. That we would see your glory and see how you set aside that glory to die on the cross for us, to give us true life. And that in response, we would live for you.